arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Roger. Clear to drop, clear to drop. Amen. Anderson, sweet. Drift checks, left trip up the other right up Five, four, three, two, one, green light. You're listening to Static Line Jumps, paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne in a C-17 which may just set the stage for Captain Loftus and company in this episode. Before Loftus goes into action, he again meets up with his service commander and old buddy Frank DeLuper, now an assistant to the President of the United States, Norman King. Everything is about to change, which leads to an incredible journey for Loftus and Zack. Here is the beginning of Episode 5, The Adventure of a Lifetime, Soldier and Desperado by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 29 As darkness fell, smog and haze settled over the collapsed Washington building. The brick debris mixed with the crushed furniture convinced Loftus that the destruction of the country had accelerated since Long Beach. His life at the loft had placed him in a safe area. Just outside this perimeter, gangs roamed freely and other groups, still without work, congregated in the open doorways and on street corners. Dead bodies rotted in the alleys because security forces remained hesitant to confront the marauding gangs. Loftus and Kath moved out of the open doorway of a dark, abandoned tenement. Sirens and gunfire started again several blocks away. He pulled Kath over a pile of putrid-smelling food scraps and the rats scattered. Zack, his rifle over his shoulder, ran from the intersection. They're headed south toward the capital. Understood. Captain, I'm worried about whether DeLuca will make it over here. Dan Forrester is in the executive office building, surrounded by troops. He knows Frank and has our Appleton files. Frank will be here at 10.30, just like the message said. Damn lucky we haven't been killed in this rat hole. Don't tell me about rats, said Kath, shaking her head. Zack nodded and plucked a cigar from his pocket and struck the match against the brick. The only rats I worry about are in charge down here. Loftus lips smiled and put his hand on Zack's shoulder for a second. He looked past a slew of damaged vehicles down the dimly lit street. In the distance, near one of the barrier walls separating the inner city, headlights rounded a building several blocks away. He checked his wrist comm and pulled out his handgun. It was exactly 10.30. Kath, behind the car. She turned toward the approaching bright white headlights. Is that DeLuca? I think so. We'll put an end to this real quick. I want my son back. Loftus squeezed her wrist, pressed his lips, and then moved with Zack toward the approaching vehicle. The headlights brightened the trash, strewn across the narrow street. A shiny black CV bounced over the potholes and stopped three buildings away. Loftus gripped his gun. Two soldiers burst from the CV and fanned rifles in both directions. The driver stepped out and opened the rear door. 
A grayer Frank DeLuca, still in his white shirt and dark tie, lumbered from the car. Desperado, reporting for duty. DeLuca focused on the car as the soldier ran into the street. It's all right, boys. Hold off. Loftus placed his gun in the side holster and stepped forward ahead of Zack. A night on the town for Crow's Peak. You guys are in big trouble. Thanks for the update, Frank. Miracle of miracles, we finally got you out here. DeLuca pointed at him. I'm telling you, you're in big trouble, mister. There's a central feed nationwide alert out on both of you. Then we must have done our job. I got your love letter on the disc files more than two hours ago. Good move not trying my lines on the portal. Most everything is screened. Loftus turned as Zack escorted Kath up the street. Ah, and here comes his other half. Listen, how you got out of that town and even Vermont is beyond me. Garvey had everything sealed. Except for horses and jeeps, said Kath. She got us out of Appleton, said Loftus. Then we owe you a debt of gratitude, and I've checked. The service has your son, Mrs. Putnam, at Bathurst Island. He's all right. Well, I want him back, nothing less. I understand. DeLuca panned the deserted street. More gunfire echoed in the night. Come on, let's get the hell out of here. We can talk about what we need to do, and you guys can brief me about Appleton inside the CV. DeLuca's tablet recorded the limo conversation. As they drove onto the open lane highway across the Potomac, Loftus's anger at Garvey and Mundy spilled over into a long, detailed description of the operation in Vermont. Look at this, Frank. Coils to receive voltage as it somehow transmitted invisibly through the sky. They claimed they were diverting power into superconductor work. I knew I was duped, but I didn't know how. Does the president know about your concerns? asked Zack. Norman? No. I didn't want to say anything until I had proof. Now you guys have given it to me as I knew you would. But the service has cut all the central feeds and government access. When the president gets back in town, we'll have this thing shut down in a matter of hours. I've talked to Isaac Watkins about this. A slow smile came to Loftus' face. Good man, Isaac. I want a military contingent ready, just in case this thing gets further covered up. You're talking about them blackmailing the government, Tommy. So we shut down Bathurst and the rest of the circus. Well, there's a lot more to this, said DeLuca. As they hummed along over a hundred miles an hour, DeLuca leaned forward. Now I'm going to drop the other shoe on you. What other shoe? asked Loftus, looking at Zack. I don't even believe what I saw. I delayed telling anybody because it was so bizarre. But it involves your buddy, Harmon Mundy. Mundy and Vandermeer were in my office. It showed me advances even Rima couldn't come up with. O'Brien's friend, Joey Atkins, mentioned things to him. A non-existent company called Denver Communications, said Loftus. Atkins was my original contact and prompted my visit to the facility. You won't believe this. Try me. They could control the images people see on the central feeds and the rest of the bands, but the images won't be real. Only what is essential for their own agenda. Oh, they say they want the president to buy into this. And Mundy is involved in this? asked Loftus. Oh, it gets better. The president is doing from China tonight. I'm meeting with him privately about this. 
This is just so bizarre. Not only can they simulate reality on a screen, but they can simulate things in the flesh. Oh, come on, Frank. Rima can't do that. Tommy, they fooled me with a false image of the president. I shook his hand. Frank, with all due respect, this is some kind of Monday smoke and mirror trick. A sideshow to divert us all from Bathurst Island. No, it's real, Tommy. They say they want to use it for security because of all the violence. But I don't believe Monday. Ditto. Let's get the bastard, said Loftus. DeLuca wrote something on his tablet and printed it. He handed the paper to Loftus. This number goes to a special frequency to my house. They can't get at this if you only use it once, boys. I'm getting you to a secure station house in Virginia. Then I'm meeting with the president and putting a stop to all this. Monday and the company controlling the power grids and the central feeds would end what little freedom we have left. I still think it's a Monday con job. We just don't have that knowledge. While I might believe Monday can simulate the central feeds, faking a person standing in the room is beyond Rima and any other research apparatus in our time. DeLuca pinched the bridge of his nose. You know, I knew it was going to be a bad day when I woke up this morning and my cat knocked over my father's antique glass clock, shattered it, 150 years old. He opened his bloodshot eyes. I'll get back to you guys in a few hours. Activate this special frequency if you need to. In the meantime, stay out of harm's way. Frank, it's not my nature to stay out of harm's way. Chapter 30 Loftus, troubled that Frank had not checked in, paced the floor. From the window, he overlooked a quiet suburban neighborhood brightly lit by the street lamps. Zack occasionally snored on the living room couch, and Kath slept neatly tucked away under the quilt in the bedroom across the hall. The delay unnerved him. Garvey would kill all of them if he had the chance. He walked into the hallway and approached DeLuca's soldiers. This is a secure station, but I need to know if we have additional secure frequencies out here. Well, that's standard practice when setting up a secure station, said the older sergeant. Yeah, I know it's standard procedure. Would you please check the damn scans? Yes, sir. He stepped into a small control room off the hall. An oscillating blue line produced a series of readouts below. The sergeant looked over his shoulders. All clear. Good. Th Who are you guys, anyway? Loftus grabbed his tablet and stepped up to the man. Don't you think DeLuca would have told you that if he wanted you to know? He stared at Loftus and then retreated to the side room. Loftus pulled DeLuca's number link from his pocket and typed it into his tablet. The screen ignited with a blue fuzziness. He rubbed his eyes as the red connecting link pulsed across the screen. Then he walked into the kitchen and sat at the table. The line beeped and Frank, still in his shirt but his tie loosened, walked by a floor lamp and toured his own tablet. Tommy, I was going to call you. Well, that's real nice of you, Frank. I'm stuck here like a damned idiot, waiting. What's the problem? Well, I had trouble getting to the president, but everything went well. It's all set. Zack staggered in from the couch, and Loftus waved him forward. He leaned over Loftus's shoulder. What do you mean it's all set? DeLuca smiled and took a drink of scotch from a wide glass. What? Did they send troops to Bathurst? asked Loftus at Zack, with an incredulous look upon his face straightened up. It's all in process. 
Loftus winced as DeLuca prattled on. He leaned at the tablet transmission and stared at DeLuca's book collection on the back wall as his friend kept talking. The camelback sofa and mahogany chairs were in the same positions as before, and the glass clock chimed at 3.45. Loftus said nothing and did not flinch, but he found it interesting that a clock Frank's cat had knocked over 12 hours earlier was now intact and functioning. Frank, brief me on the exact logistics of the Bathurst operation. You leave that to all of us, Tommy, and just try and relax out there after what you guys have been through. We'll handle it all from here. Good, I need some shut-eye. Keep me informed. Loft us out. I will. Good night. Toluca's image faded back to blue. Loftus slowly panned toward Zack and the two men locked eyes. Then Loftus walked toward the front door. The sergeant and the younger private quickly approached them. We're stepping outside. Zack opened the door and the gruff sergeant pressed his lips. Loftus shot through quickly into the lower driveway and held Zack's arm. He spoke in a low voice from the side of his mouth when they reached the street. You know what Frank said about that clock? Zack paused and nodded. Monday's simulation. I'm assuming that's exactly what it is. Zack's charged eyes opened wider. Captain, I would say we need to get out of our little nest egg here. Rise and shine, good buddy. I'll get Kath. The soldiers wandered onto the driveway. Loftus wondered if they overheard his words. He never made eye contact as he and Zack marched back inside. A mass of brown hair covered the white pillowcase in Kath's bedroom. He nudged her shoulder. She rolled over and cracked open her eyes. What's the matter, Tommy? We're moving out, Loftus whispered. Why? We just are. Zack stuck his head in the bedroom doorway and pointed to the outside window. Captain, too late. Why? Troops surrounding the house. Damn, what does this mean? Loftus lifted the blinds. A convoy of military jeeps, transport trucks, and combat-ready men, toting rifles and heavy packs, now formed a circle around the ranch house. Loftus exhaled and gently banged the window frame with his clenched fist. We missed getting out of here by minutes. As the truck rumbled down the highway, Loftus rested his chin on his fist. Five young soldiers steadied automatic weapons on their legs. He shook his head at Zack. Kath leaned against him under a military blanket procured three hours ago. She had done nothing. Her son had done nothing. Yet a rogue service operation had ensnared them. While Loftus worried about the implications of Mundy's technology, he was more immediately concerned about the convincing simulation of DeLuca and his unbroken clock. The truck brakes squealed as they stopped. A lanky man in fatigues leaped from a jeep behind the truck and crawled into the back of the transport. Captain Loftus? That depends. He smiled and saluted, then he shook Loftus's hand. I'm Lieutenant Parsons, sir. I'm under orders at this point. I can only tell you that we're proceeding to a prearranged location. All questions will be answered upon your arrival. Who issued your orders, Lieutenant? <laughs> sir, I cannot tell you that. Harmon Mundy? John Garvey? I really can't answer that, sir. Right, then we wait. Loftus loathed meeting a gloating Harmon Mundy. They may have been spared because of Mundy's own vanity. He crossed his arms and turned toward Kath. She tightened her face. What about John? I don't know. Her long hair brushed his face. I can't believe this. I can't. He blamed himself now because he should never have gone near her cabin. His stomach wrenched as he sent spinning inside his head. 
He rolled his eyes and fell back into a soft cushion as he went to another place. The fuzzy rainbow sharpened and arced downward toward a towering clear pyramid built upon a white-hued rock slab. Trevor ran ahead of the two-man tarry. We are at the shrine, the Bunshaf. Wait for us, Trevor, called Enoch. Trevor, tatted brown clothing hanging on his little frame, saw his reflection in the pyramid's clear surface. My father was right, he was. The two men approached in the Bunshaf's reflection. I see no entrance, said Frossel. In the twilight, they circled the base of the enormous structure. All this journey and no way inside, said Enoch, moving his hands over the smooth surface. The distant sky above the valley flashed green. Trevor's heart buzzed when the Creod cluster ships crossed the horizon. He held his father's small bunshuff around his neck. The hordes! Enoch raised his hands to the sky. Tabunshah, save us from the inner vengeance. Save us from the claws of death. Bring us unto your arms. Bring us to the oneness of Tabunshah. Trevor ran his fingers along the bunshaf, but slowed near a softness on the wall. He poked his hand inside and called the last two mantari over to him. They praised Tabunshah and stepped through the surface as the approaching cluster ships hugged the desert floor below. Trevor thought the Creods might spot them near the Bunshaf and fire their deadly weapons. Frossel and Anik pulled him forward as they merged into the spongy, clear Bunshaf. He heard no sound outside when he turned, but a cruiser more massive than he had remembered now hovered above the Bunshaf. Thick, jagged green light shot from the clouds and the Bunshaf shook. Trevor stumbled forward with the two-man tarry. Again, the bunshaft vibrated as an intense green energy scattered off the outside walls. With the next crash, he tumbled, but his body suddenly drifted upward. The space cruiser attack shook the bunshaft, but Trevor had no weight and floated deeper behind the two-man tarry. The outside attack faded as he neared a pale green brightness, and a heaviness returned to his body. Frossel and Anik stepped onto another white slab. Where are we? I do not know, said Frossel, pointing to an archway atop a long white slope below a cloudy green glow. This way! A faint, persistent bombardment continued outside as Trevor ran with the Mantari up the slab. Grain, brown columns, and smooth tan walls supported the archway's inner dome, shimmering red with silver dust. Trevor peered through a smaller opening above the mosaic floor. A thin green canal cut through the same white rock toward long white boats with copper sails floating near a green ocean. The dome shook as Frossel and Anik reached the archway. Anik looked back as another intense bombardment sent a crack across the lower slab. We have to hurry before the hordes destroy us! Boats, said Frossel, pointing inside. Praise be to Tabun Shah! Anik took Trevor's hand and they crossed through the smaller opening. Behind them, chunks fell from the dome as the barrage continued. Trevor wondered, as they ran along the canal's green waters, where this ocean might take them. With the persisting attack, he knew if they did not reach the boats within the next few minutes, the death of everyone he knew and the destruction of this planet would mean nothing. Chapter 31 
The truck rocked as the morning sun blinded Loftus's aching eyes. Kath's head rested on his shoulder as she slept. Although her earlier words were not vindictive, she must have blamed him for what happened to her son. Zack snoozed in the corner near the soldiers as Parsons smiled. You passed out, Captain. Zack said something about a problem, a dreaming problem. I'm all right. The dirt road sped below the truck as the trees whipped by. Where are we? All your questions will be answered in just a few minutes. If Harmon Mundy thinks I've come to bow down to him, he's got another thing coming. Loftus peered out of the back of the truck. The morning rays backlit the silhouetted mountaintops. I'd say we're down in Virginia somewhere. I'm sorry, sir. I can understand your frustration. He glanced at Kath and then back at Parsons. Son, you have no idea my level of frustration. They slowed in a clearing along a briskly moving river between the hills and the mountains beyond. Men in combat fatigues walked the lodge's long porch and adjacent grounds to the river. Parsons and his men vaulted the canvas truck opening and waved loftest outside. Beyond the lodge, a landing strip with several huge camouflaged military transports, a fleet of smaller jets and several suborbital planes brightened in the morning light. Zack squinted toward the canvas opening. His voice was an octave lower after sleeping. It's impressive, Captain. Somebody has big plans. Loftus nodded as Kath stirred. She opened and closed her eyes several times and also looked toward the opening. Where are we? I think we're about to find out. Parsons pulled back the canvas as more troops gathered behind the truck. Time to move out, Captain. Kath held Loftus's hand as they stepped from the truck. The dense concentration and movement of troops along the hazy airstrip suggested a heightened state of alert. Loftus had rehearsed lines should Mundy be inside the lodge. He would refuse to take any guff, yet he was unsure just what Mundy wanted. They followed Parsons under a few spreading aspens and stepped between the troops on the wood porch. Parsons opened the wood door and Loftus and Kath entered an air-conditioned control center. Maps covered the varnished log wall. Sophisticated electronic equipment and screens filled the semicircular area in the center. A stocky man with short gray hair and an olive baseball cap turned from one of the screen maps as Parsons approached. Isaac Watkins, said Loftus. Parsons spoke loudly as he saluted. General, all personnel are retrieved and are in good shape. Thank you, Lieutenant, answered the general. He adjusted his cap and faced Loftus across the room. Last time I saw you was in Shilato, off the Yellow Sea. Wang Kuei, answered Loftus. Watkins and Loftus converged in front of the giant map of the United States and the Northern Hemisphere. You and Zach were being called stateside. If the general will forgive me, I expected to see Harmon Mundy standing here. Disappointed, Tom? I dare say you won't see Harmon Mundy within 500 miles of this place. Loftus gripped Watkins' tight hand. Too bad. I had some poignant remarks for the son of a bitch. How are you, Isaac? Not bad for an old war horse. You look good. Welcome to our staging area. Staging area? This area is supposed to be used, shall we say, to quell each round of urban violence. We are a renegade squadron. We bring in the fresh troops to the hot spots right from here. However, Frank DeLuca alerted me to the whole Appleton fiasco last night before he disappeared. I have complete backing from the White House, King himself. I don't know what happened to Frank. Well, that cinches it, said Zack, sir. 
He's been missing since midnight, said the general. How are you, Zach? I've been better, sir. Captain, tell him about the phony clock. Some kind of reality simulation, said Loftus. They faked a call from Frank's house. I knew it was fake because his antique clock was broken yesterday morning, yet the clock was in the transmission. Well, I don't know anything about any clock, but Frank briefed me on everything he knew last night. King gave the order. This operation is very cozy, let me tell you. The general furrowed his wide brow and dropped his smile. These advances by Rima are very unsettling. Everything is dangerous enough with the service about to utilize some sub-atmospheric electricity. But having the central fees produce these false images... We're on our own down here. The service has everything blocked, and I will not communicate with King or anyone else in the military until I take the island. I just don't know the implications of all this, and I can assure you the service has no idea we're flying to Bathurst. Loftus chuckled. The infamous Bathurst. What about my son? asked Kath, stepping forward. The general crunched his teeth. You must be Kathleen Putnam. Grady. Excuse me, Kathleen Grady. We have this plan very well, and I will get your son out. General, Bathurst is in northern Canada. Correct. We've known for some time, it's trickled down through channels, that the service is experimenting with sub-atmospheric electricity up there. Bathurst Island was a radio transmission area, like a blockhouse and a radar screening station from a hundred years ago. We don't know, Tom, how they are producing such prodigious amounts of electricity to beam around the world. Why attack it? asked Zach. Because what they want to do is link together with the central feed simulations. Knock out their power, and we've got them, pure and simple. I don't know who is in cahoots with Monday. That's why this attack should be limited and quick. You know I don't like elaborate plans. What kind of defenses do they have, Isaac? asked Loftus. It's so remote and been kept so secret, they've kept it at a minimal defense. We can take it, he said, looking over to Kath, and get your son out of there. She turned to Loftus. Loftus nodded. Do we have a layout of this place? Spoken like the man I want to lead these merry men to Bathurst, said Isaac. What? I need your help, Tom. All the planning is done. I need inspiration now. The group is experienced in going into urban situations. You and Zach, you've taken fortifications. You know how to handle this. All I want is 165 well-armed men, minimal supplies and equipment. I don't want to start a world war, just take the island complex. Because, he squinted and choked on his words. Listen, I don't know what they have planned with all this advanced scientific stuff. I feel, and DeLuca felt, if they go forward with their plans and we don't stop them now, we never will. And somebody needs to expose the cover-up up in Appleton. Well, there must be a way to contact the president and just launch a full assault on this place, said Loftus. Negative. The service has infiltrated the inner circle. You'd never get in. And even if you could, it would be too late. Loftus grinned and moved closer to his old friend and grasped his hand. He paused before he spoke. When do we leave? The general shook his hand, grinned broadly, and patted Loftus on the shoulder. That's the spirit. Loftus turned to Kath. I'll get him out, Kath. I give you my word. Chapter 32. Loftus stuffed his head full of download satellite schematics of the Bathurst complex. In his mind, he followed the ramps downward from the blockhouse into the heart of the underground complex. Intense magnetic displacement clouded any deeper readings, according to the reports. Wearing camouflage combat fatigues and planning for a high-pressure mission made him feel young again. 
Years ago, he and Zack had fought the Chinese and had escaped death so many times. The ensuing downtime out of the service had dulled his confidence. Thoughts of Harmon Mundy controlling the service and the advanced technology had charged him to a vindictive pitch. After two and a half hours of intense planning meetings and studying diagrams, he stepped onto the lodge porch. In the golden sunshine, Kath, her arms folded, stood on the riverbank and gazed toward the distant mountains. Loftus scurried down the stairs and headed on a wooded trail toward her. A breeze kicked up as he neared the grassy bank. She wore a white cable sweater and jeans. Her auburn hair unfurled and his eyes moistened. Life isn't fair, is it? No, it almost never is. Loftus's heart raced with conflicting impulses. Bathurst Island is named after Henry Bathurst, the third Earl Bathurst. He was the British Secretary of State for War in the Colonies, 1812 to 1827. I can see you've done your homework. She nodded. I don't want to lose my son, Tommy. He put his arm around her and they walked the grassy bank. In a matter of hours, he would be parachuting over Bathurst Island. They sat under a protruding tree branch and for the longest time they held each other quietly. What are you thinking? That I shouldn't have been remotely near your house. How else would you get out of town? I believe in fate. Things happen in ways we can't understand. And turned toward the swift moving river currents and shook his head. I always kept thinking, no matter where I was, no matter how much danger I was in, I kept thinking you'd walk over the next hill, drive up in the next car, appear from thin air. But things don't happen that way, do they? I just let you go without any discussion, Tommy. You can say what you had to do, but I can say I never should have just stood there like a statue and let you get on the bus. That isn't going to change anything now, is it? His eyes filled and he swallowed a few times, and then looked across the river to the Blue Mountains. He's our son, Tommy. No, that's not possible. You, Mr. Loftus, have a short memory. It is very possible. Loftus submitted a few nervous laughs and then shook his head. My God, does he know? No, he thinks John Putnam was his father. Loftus pulled her up. I want to come back to Appleton when this is over. I'm not saying we can pick up right from the bus stop, Kath, but I want some time to sort things out with you. Maybe we can build a cabin. Right, I plan to get a full restitution there, believe me. When I saw him ride up on that horse, I saw you in his face. But he's my son. Yeah. He gently stroked her smooth cheek and held her face in his hands. In the breeze, her long hair brushed his neck and arms as the river churned beside him. It was as if he had never left her all those years ago. Loftus, propped against the transport wall, sat next to Zack amidst the hum of the giant transport engines. Isaac puffed on a stubby cigar next to the readout panel and checked his wrist comm. The general shrugged his shoulders and Loftus grinned. Loftus looked down at the silver, undulating Atlantic, buoyed by a colossal surge of steel-blue angled clouds to the north. He smiled as he thought about the falsified orders Isaac had used to authorize this flight to Bathurst. Those stated orders mixed with images of Kath at the runway just before they were airborne. Now he faced the challenge of taking the underground complex at Bathurst and, and getting their son back to the United States. Here it comes, shouted Isaac. The hawk-nosed Parsons and a few high-level officers crowded around the screen. 
About time we got a current scan. I thought they might be on to us. Gentlemen, this is an uninhabited island, probably why they chose the location. Some higher ground? asked Loftus. Isaac stood with his hands on his hips. The island is basically low-lying. Stokes Mountain is only 1,352 feet. Vegetation and wildlife. You might encounter some polar bears. I didn't know Mundy was indigenous, said Loftus as Zack leaned back his head and smiled. The only other abnormality was the Earth's north magnetic pole positioned northward across Bathurst Island during the 1960s and 1970s. This is where our compasses pointed to. Now let's check the complex itself, said Isaac. The familiar blue schematic of the area below ground slowly materialized on the forward screen. Under the tundra, designated in red, the complex inverted like a massive cone. The cone contained several ramped storage units and corridors leading to a central elevator system. Whether for security or coincidence, the strategic control areas appeared well below the cone's apex. Corridors, heating systems, and wiring became fragmentary under the control area 600 feet below the ground. Power generation is below that? asked Loftus, pointing to the screen. Possibly. We never really got a full representation below 630 feet. Isaac looked at a few of his aides behind Parsons. We should have sufficient gas canisters to flood the hell out of this place and minimize the shooting. Older pictures from 50, maybe 100 years ago, materialized on the screen. Some were in black and white. Orange radar dishes from the last century covered the coast in a series of simple white cinder block buildings stood in the low arctic light below the chain link and barbed wire fencing. Newer images of the area from the satellite and from passing freighter ships were similar. Parsons grinned. Loftus thought he looked nervous. They simply left it the way it used to be back when everyone had missiles pointed at each other. What I'm going to have for you guys in a few minutes is an update of the room-by-room -room schematics we gave you on the ground. It will include air, heating, and electrical descriptions down to the 600-foot level. should be similar to what we viewed back in Virginia. It will give you a better idea where the gas will spread once we get in there. Well, they must have troops, Isaac, said Loftus. Not necessarily. As I said, groundside, Tom, minimal. They left it like an abandoned radar station in the middle of the Arctic tundra. We'll have resistance, but Harmon Mundy and his band of marauders? asked Loftus. The entire contingent laughed, but Isaac held up his hands. I would not underestimate anyone. I don't want the first wave going in thinking it's a cakewalk. The Bathurst personnel will go wild once we break up their little party. They'll be sleeping, said Loftus. They will, and once again, when the gas goes in there, it could become a high-pitched battle. In the late afternoon, as the sunbeams projected through the portal window, Loftus looked away from the tablet's bright schematic. They had rehearsed the attack on the simulations, but the real test would come when the Bathurst contingent started shooting. The sun cut a moving path of shimmering diamonds over the ocean waters. Beyond the southern horizon, City violence tore apart a volatile America. Central information feeds controlled the populace and an electric grid system would soon depend on Bathurst Island. The men chosen to lead the first assault were only in their 20s. Kids, he thought, all jittery, all in perfect condition and all scared to death at the thought of dying. Zack leaned over and spoke over the engine's buzz. A few short hours we'll have our collective hands around Mundy's fat neck, Captain. My weapon will be aimed at other body parts, thank you very much. I didn't think he had any. Loftus, still smiling, spoke in a lower voice. 
I just want to see the look on his fat countenance when we take this place. He'll panic. You know he'll fold under pressure. There's no way he'll be able to handle anything like this. You know what Isaac said. We take nothing for granted. He scanned the troops positioned against the duffel bags, packs, and weapons. These boys have been trained for the cities, but they're ready to fight. Zack looked out the window. What about the kid? Loftus had not told Zack the truth about John. In a way, he wished John were David Putnam's son. Flesh and blood now bonded him with Kath. We'll get him the hell out of there. Zack nodded and Loftus stared at the darkening sea. He prayed for his son and chuckled. Years had passed since he prayed about anything. He specifically remembered praying after his men planted explosives and marched through the mountain pass to face a Chinese contingent. Now he prayed they would stop Monday, but he wondered, as he had when he was young, if his prayers were in vain, if anyone was really listening, maybe praying like the resonating in his dreams provided the ultimate delusion. Chapter 33 As he peered at the star-swept horizon, Loftus shared the combined confidence of the force. He visualized Harmon Mundy asleep in his quarters deep beneath Bathurst Island. At 2 a.m., Washington time, all personnel had suited up with chutes in place and were fully armed. Hundreds of service missions made him at one time believe in his own invincibility. Now, only a few years removed from the service, he realized that high risk-taking had brought him close to death too many times. With Kath waiting back in Virginia and his own son captive at Bathurst Island, he faced his own mortality in quiet reflection. He had received word from Isaac through his Helmel portal just minutes before. As a part of the first wave, he was required to lead the primary force. On the small blue and white screen to the right of his visor, he studied the deserted outside tundra and the abandoned blockhouse. He nixed the visual screen and flipped up his visor. These young men, some making their first combat jump, looked toward him. He started along the line, offering words of encouragement, sometimes checking their chutes and munitions as he passed. Isaac's stern warnings about the service accumulating illegal power had sunk in with great seriousness across each face. They were ready to take Bathurst. Zack pretended to punch his arm and winked, but neither man spoke. When the transport's huge bay door moved upward, exposing the windy pre-dawn skies, his mind focused on Kath. The possibility of somehow getting back together with her in Appleton swirled in his thoughts. The cold air whipped through the transport opening. He checked his wrist calm and closed his visor. As the transport's powerful engines vibrated and the plane veered left, only seconds remained before the jump. Loftus bent his knees and his clear medallion, a bunshoff in his dreams, pressed cold against his chest. Through his helmet transmitter, he heard Isaac's words. Jump! Loftus dived into the cold air. As the behemoth plane rumbled above, he sensed a weightless feeling. Seconds later, a dark chute mushroomed and the tug from the air drag pulled on his shoulders. Silhouetted soldiers dotted the cloudless night sky. An odd sense of freedom swept over him as he floated. He flipped on the helmet side screen again and the bright blockhouse schematic of inactive radar dishes brightened in the dark. His eyes slowly rotated left. The thin line of breakers moved toward the Gray Island shoreline. Loftus hit the live feed. Scans of the complex revealed no troops or anyone in the upper areas. Bathurst personnel aligned as if they were sleeping, were 52 feet down one of the side corridors. 
They had made the premier mistake of believing the isolation would protect them. As he swayed in the wind, only a few hundred feet above the tundra, he prepared for the impact. Loftus soon tumbled and then scrambled along a grainy siltstone plain. He checked the expanse for Zack as he quickly packed his chute. More parachute shadows descended from the starry sky. Zack would not be far away. Isaac halted all transmissions until they gained a foothold in preparation for the next wave. Everyone was to gather and report to Loftus. Men were already marching across the tundra. A long chain-link fence, 20 feet high, rimmed a simple white blockhouse a few hundred yards ahead. A series of antiquated, wire-knitted antenna dishes tilted skyward behind the building. Steam spewed from a plethora of rounded vents and boxes lining the rear fence adjacent to the antenna. Loftus stepped forward. Everyone, over here. Someone grabbed his shoulder. I'm getting too old for this, Captain, whispered Zack. That'll be the day. Get the guys over here, Zack. Will do, Captain. On the screen, Loftus saw no activity above or below the complex. A few people remained inside the blockhouse, but the lack of movement indicated they were either sitting or sleeping. Reading showed humongous electrical lines cast in concrete and descending vertically from the transmitting antennas into an area containing prodigious power. He turned to Zack and the contingent before him. Sector 1, get the canisters and the ducts on my orders. Sector 2, we have only three people inside that blockhouse and no one to the fourth level. Our goal is to shut down this place. However, we can't scan anything below 600 feet, and there the power readings go off the scale. We move below and start making our decisions as scans develop. This isn't a shootout unless they make it a shootout. Gentlemen, we have people in charge here who are taking things into their own hands. They want to control the flow of power and the flow of information. Something I have trouble believing, but it is real. Shutting down this place thwarts their plans. General Watkins has told me what you boys are capable of. Take nothing for granted. You all have your orders. Activate supplementary air supply. Let's make these people regret the day they came up here. Loftus ordered his first men toward the steamy ducks beyond the blockhouse. A group of ten men with full packs paralleled the rusted chain-link fence. With a fresh supply of air filtered within his helmet and his rifle set, he led Zack and the rest of the men toward the fence corner. Parsons brought up the first group over the newly inflated foam barriers behind the blockhouse and they descended near the ducks. Five men moved around Loftus and unfurled a long yellow tarp over the barbed wire fence. The foam inflated and the tarp stiffened. Loftus scrambled up the studded abrasive surface and slid down the smooth inner wall. His boots scattered the stones and he ran ahead of his men. According to the scans, a ramp with several parked trucks descended below a wide corrugated door. The upper scans detailed three men asleep in a room off the main corridor. They're not prepared, he muttered on the open helmet speaker. Zack's voice was clear in his own speaker. What was that, Captain? Mundy is an idiot not defending this place. Never assume anything. Parsons and his people skirted the blockhouse and approached Loftus. Canisters are deployed, Captain. The gas should be seeping into the system as we speak. Good work, Lieutenant. Listen. Listen up, everyone. Transmissions will remain out until I give the word. We're going down that stairwell as per plan until we get to the newer sections below. Soldiers pointed rifles at the cinder block building's dented doors. 
Zack and two men stretched a roll of flexible tape on the door hinges and tapped into the security alarms with a blinking red box. Loftus nodded and they popped the hinges. Green light from the translucent carta tube shone onto the grainy soil. He followed the troops inside the heated blockhouse, and the low-light magnifier on his helmet indeed showed three unarmed men in blue uniforms stretched out on bunks. He flipped on the lights and stirred the sleeping men. With rifle barrels pointed at their heads, Loftus moved closer. He drew his own sidearm. Where's Mundy? Colonel is below, said the sleepy blonde guy. When he coughed, Loftus checked the screen. Gas began to filter through the silver heating grates embedded in the cinder blocks. The two other men coughed. I'm having trouble breathing. Get them helmets, ordered Loftus. He faced the blonde guy. You're going to lead us below. Yes, sir. Parsons placed a helmet over the man's head. What are they doing up here? They're transmitting electricity. How? The turbo fields and the generators. The what? From the lower levels, the energy. Where's the energy come from? Asked Zack. I don't know. I'm just on watch and have maintenance duties. Where are your troops? There must be troops defending this place. We have soldiers stationed here. Level 6, down the stairway. Maybe 50 men. Okay, very good. Let's go. Parsons and his group marched the three men toward an unpainted metal door. Loftus squeezed by them into the dank stairwell. Using the helmet's low-level light visor, he descended below the blockhouse along the newer concrete walls. On the schematics, a connecting ramp to the surface passed near the fourth-floor stairwell. The gas had not yet reached the ramp. Loftus approached the fourth-floor's locked black door. Zack scurried by Parsons and swung his pack to the concrete. He removed the same type of override he had used to enter the blockhouse. When the door hinges fell loose, a brighter ramp corridor constructed with more concrete led down into the earth. He sent two men to guard the ramp door. As they sprinted around the corner, Loftus pushed a single button on his visor, alerting Isaac to bring in heavier equipment and station more men on the ground. With the docile troops still two floors below, he set up defensive positions along the ramp. By holding this area and taking prisoners once the gas filtered in, Equipment, arms, and men would have easy access to the freight consolidation area below. His screen beeped. Six men running from the lower confines registered on his screen alert. Loftus braced his men in pike formations with weapons pointed at the ramp bend. A half a dozen soldiers in yellow fatigues and packs skidded and dove back around the concrete. Loftus's men unloaded their weapons. In the ensuing crossfire, some of his men went down. Medics quickly attended the fallen men. He ordered immediate canister deployment. More shots ricocheted across the concrete, but the Bathurst men retreated down the ramp. I read more men stirring, several hundred feet below, Captain, said Parsons. Loftus nodded, and he saw the same thing on his helmet screen. Understood. Two dead, sir, said one of the medics. Loftus winced. Take care of them. Let's head for the freight consolidation area. Mundy held Loftus' own son prisoner in this very complex. Loftus clenched his fists and then he waved his men down the ramp. Spent shells and ammunition clips were scattered across the concrete. The loss of two men already enraged Loftus and he stormed forward with his weapon drawn. On his screen a larger contingent of troops lined up inside the staging area. A smoky haze hung high over the ramp as a swarm of bullets ricocheted up the ramp. 
Loftus's men returned the fire. Some of the soldiers closed the folded portable wall and cordoned off an elevated area leading to additional ramps below. More canisters on the dark, Parsons. Parsons and three other men hurled the tiny black canisters across the staging area. The valves popped, sending smoke like a jet craft's vapor trail across the room toward four fans spinning on the high ceiling. Parsons' eyes blazed through the helmet visor. Not working. Loftus ran over to his small arms personnel as the incoming fire continued. He personally grabbed a rocket launcher and steadied himself on one knee toward the staging area. Most of the soldiers hid below the folded portable wall. Loftus aimed the launcher and pushed the red button. The folded petition fell apart as Loftus tumbled back against the wall. A mass of debris fell over yellow uniformed Bathurst men as they fled the stage. Loftus moved his men into the freight area. They quickly surrounded several dozen Bathurst soldiers. More of his rear contingent secured the Connors. He beeped Isaac a second time. Isaac would not arrive until they took the complex and the military equipment would then roll down the ramp. His helmet scan revealed more Bathurst troops had escaped the gas on the lower levels by taking the central elevators deeper into the complex. He looked at his men. Parsons wiped the sweat off his brow and then secured his visor over his face. Loftus did not see Zack. He took a head count. Three men were missing. But he did not see Zack as he walked up to Parsons. Lieutenant. Sir. Assume command. Sir? Loftus pulled up his visor. I'm going back up the ramp. That's a good idea, sir. My friend is back there. Parsons stared at him. Loftus thought of Zack sprawled on the floor and possibly dying. He slipped his visor over his face and held out his weapon as he retraced his steps up the ramp. Fifty feet away, two men in yellow fatigues rounded the corner. With several quick pops, he plugged the soldiers before they could raise their sidearms. He ran forward toward one of his fallen men. Inside a shattered helmet visor, a young man's face... Lips parked as he gasped for breath, called out for help. Help me, Captain. I'll do my best, son. Turned back to the corridor. I need medical attention up here right now. Two men scampered along the concrete. As they attended the young man, Loftus rounded the corner. Up the ramp, Zack's compact body was face down in a blood puddle. Loftus sprinted and then bent over his old friend. Zack's heart beat slowly. Tiny shrapnel holes that sliced through Zack's olive uniform. Another Bathurst soldier appeared up ahead. Loftus fired his pistol and sent the man to the floor. In rapid succession, he removed a blanket from his pack, rolled Zack over and tried not to look at his lifeless face. He dragged his friend down the ramp, leaving a blood trail smeared across the concrete. Loftus wondered about the extent of Zack's injuries and doubted whether his old friend could sustain his grip on life. Isaac's second wave arrived down the freight ramps. The medics worked on Zack's internal wounds inside a bubble tent, pitched in the midst of the haze and the debris around the stage. Loftus tried to segregate Zack's injuries from the mission. He refined Isaac's original plan on a tablet, knowing Zack would remain with the medics. The surrounding activity prompted him to look up. Jeeps with repeating weapons attacked armored vehicles maneuvering in small places. Over 60 men now formed a contingent in the spacious freight area. Making contact with the general's group on the transport made no sense with the sketchy lower-level reconnaissance. According to the prisoners in the second jeep, more well-armed Bathurst soldiers were lurking just below. 
He crawled into the lead jeep, nodded to Parsons in the adjacent seat, and ordered the smaller armored vehicle forward. On the large jeep screen, massive energy readings blocked the area below 600 feet. Accompanied by a few advanced foot soldiers, Parsons shifted and the jeep hummed down the concrete. Now Loftus could finally confront all the leftover feelings about Long Beach and Monday's assuming power. Chapter 34 Mundy fumbled with his bathrobe tie, tripped on the bedsheets, and stumbled forward. There's more up here at Bathurst than just the raw electrical power and the transmission. Let me tell you, much more. This is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. What else is going on? I'm slipping the tongue. Slipping the tongue. Classified. I thought everything was classified, said the sergeant. Then it's double classified. The elevator door slid open. Mundy's eyes popped as a string of men lay bleeding across the floor. The next elevator car opened and he stumbled inside to escape the gas. Sir, what do we do? Do we find the medics? I don't care. I'm going below, he said from the adjacent car. The doors clamped shut and he removed his handkerchief, took a long deep breath and smacked the communications button. Get me John Garvey. Colonel Garvey has gone to the upper levels to fight the attack, answered the operations room officer. How many men do we have left? I don't know. Well, who the hell is attacking us? There's gas in the air ducts, in the ducts. The Premium Mobile has closed the upper vents and circulating ducts. You need to head up to the fight, Colonel. Mundy stared at the speaker and squinted. He was much too valuable to put himself in jeopardy. No, I think I'll remain in operational command. I'm on my way. Sir, the Premium Mobile is being moved with others to a more secure area below. Good. Inform him I'll be joining him. I'm sorry, sir. I received specific instruction to inform you. You are being excluded from this area, and you are ordered to fight the attack. I don't recognize those orders. Sir, the orders come from the Premium Mobile himself. Monday banged on the panel button. Cowards! All of them! Cowards! Loftus halted the convoy when the bullets hit the concrete. He leaped from the jeep and ran past two armored vehicles to the advanced soldiers, gathered with their rifles drawn near a steep curved passageway. John Garvey's voice snapped like a whip from up ahead. This place is going up. Is he serious? Asked Parsons. Well, the cowboy arrives. I don't know what the hell he's talking about, but by the sound of his voice, he's not wearing a mask, which means there's no gas down there. Loftus backtracked to the jeep as more gunfire reverberated down the corridor. Bullets grazed the concrete as he hugged the inner wall. That son of a bitch killed Vernon Crawford. He ordered more canisters thrown down the ramp. A group of Parsons men rushed by and hurled the plastic cylinders down the incline. Gradually, sinking gray gas hovered about five or six feet above the concrete. Still, Garvey's incoming fire continued, stopping Loftus at the bend. He finally activated his open channel. By now, the general should have reached the staging area. General, this is Loftus. The signal coming through Loftus's helmet speaker was wavy. Come on, we aren't getting any readings at all. General, I can hardly hear you. What is happening? Tremendous power. This is complex. It's following up the music General! General! much interference, sir. What the hell is going on in here? 
He heard Garvey from across the murky smoke near the opening. Surrender your forces now! Your orders, Captain? Loftus bit his lower lip and glanced ahead. We're going through. Get in the jeep. I've about had it with this monkey. Loftus sat next to Parsons at the gun turret. Parsons cranked the engine and shifted the jeep. Advanced troops, shielded by the armored vehicles, unloaded more rounds into the haze. The convoy rolled downward for several minutes as the incoming gunfire dissipated. When the smoke cleared, the corridor widened to a rock-lined tunnel. The remnants of the yellow uniform Bathurst contingent threw down their weapons and surrendered. Loftus did not see John Garvey. His advance men rounded up the prisoners and marched them up the ramp. He immediately leaped from the jeep and grilled them about Garvey and Mundy. No one had any information as to either man's whereabouts. They did inform Loftus that the Bathurst Operations Center was just beyond the huge opening in the rocks. Scans confirmed the existence of the area, but the prodigious power surged even deeper below. Loftus sent the prisoners and the guards up the ramp. He then ordered the armored vehicles forward through the rock opening. Strangely, no one defended the guts of the complex. He attempted to call Isaac again, but the channel hissed, and he finally lost the signal. The jeep rolled through the spacious rocky tunnel, and he spoke into his helmet channel. Advance team. Connors. Send somebody ahead. I want to know why there's no one in that operations center. Yes, sir. Parsons turned in the jeep. A trick, Captain? Loftus almost called him Zack. I don't trust Garvey, and Monday is probably hiding under the bed. Chapter 35 The corridor opened up to a prodigious cave, dwarfing the Appleton facility. Red coils the size of city buildings extended to the rocks, hundreds of feet above the concrete. He ordered the attack force around the rim and kept the armored vehicles back at the opening. A center sloping glass disc slowly rotated atop an hourglass base threaded with stainless steel elevators. Readings indicated the gas had not penetrated this area. Loftus flipped his visor. The fresh air entered his lungs and cooled his sweaty face. This is quite the effort, Lieutenant. We don't have the technology to do this. Loftus nodded and checked the jeep's screen. I still don't see John Garvey and I don't trust Mundy. In his head, he again replayed Garvey barking out orders from the helicopter above Kath's cabin. One of his men brought a captured Bathurst soldier from the corridor. Captain, this man has more information about the complex. Loftus looked into the young kid's blue eyes. Well, the colonel said we were on our own. Colonel? You mean Colonel Mundy or Garvey? asked Loftus. Mundy left for the turbo fields. The what? Below. The turbo fields power the generators below Bathurst. Way below. Figures Mundy took off, said Loftus. There's more of this place below? How can that be? asked Parsons. What kind of power source? Never mind that. I want 25 men, Lieutenant. Have some make physical contact with General Watkins. Advise him what we're doing. Yes, sir. And check on my friend Zack. Loftus left six of the men in the operations center above and marched a second group toward the central elevators. The wide stainless doors slid open and he turned to the young Bathurst soldier. What's your name, son? Williams. I'm not a soldier. I'm a technician here at the complex. Why are we being attacked, Captain? The doors closed and the car started downward. This is a scientific operation and fully authorized. Maybe that's what they led you to believe, Williams. But it's far from authorized and it's very dangerous. What are the turbo fields? 
Williams's face lit up. If you check on any map or compass reading, you'll find Bathurst Island is centered near the source of the Earth's magnetic field. That's what I thought. The iron ore. The car dropped quickly into the Earth. Williams shook his head. We've never been allowed to venture deeper than ten miles. Ten miles? Did you say ten miles? Yes, sir. We were instructed to convert the magnetic energy into electricity. Loftus twisted his mouth as he nodded and transmit that energy sub-atmospherically around the world. It's a great achievement, Captain. Maybe it is, if it's used properly. How did they carve out that cave back there? I don't know. I was transferred up here after I left the Navy. Loftus pressed his lips. They want to pressure the government by controlling the power grids. And they have more things they're doing with the central feeds. You mean Colonel Mundy, he asked as the car continued down. He's a part of it, that's for sure. But something else isn't right here. Loftus crossed the elevator and sat on the upholstered red leather bench. He stretched out his legs and folded his arms. As he closed his eyes, Parsons indicated all the lower scans were inoperative. Williams quickly explained the fields would dampen all wireless communication. Loftus kept his eyes closed until the car slowed several minutes later and the outside braking mechanism whined. He put on his helmet as he stood and crossed the elevator. Williams looked into his eyes and Loftus put his hand on the younger man's shoulder. We're deep in the earth. Where exactly are we? Above the fields. Engineering crews have barracks down here and the generators are located here on this level. Then Monday could be down here. Possibly. Loftus checked his wrist comm. The door slid open. He swung his rifle into a brilliant azure haze that covered his fatigues in the elevator. An electrical static raised the hair on his head inside the helmet when he stepped onto a wide white catwalk extending over a blue twinkling field. He approached the catwalk's beveled edge with Parsons. Minute electrical charges, probably static, wandered through the indefinite nebulous field, producing pinpoint bursts like raindrops hitting a puddle. Yet the burst had a three-dimensional look into a field with no apparent end. Like looking into infinity, said Loftus. He moved along the catwalk with his hands on his hips. We're miles under the earth, in a habitable area. I want to know what the hell is going on up here. There he is, cried one of the men, pointing further down the catwalk. Loftus spun around. Although he was far away, Loftus recognized Mundy's bouncing gait. Harmon Mundy. Let's get him. No, said Loftus, grabbing his wrist. This man is my problem. Yes, sir. Loftus took a deep breath, gripped his rifle, and ran along the catwalk. He kept a steady pace as the static crackled in the surrounding blue light burst. Mundy rumbled along without looking back, but Loftus closed the gap quickly. Mundy was still in his red bathrobe. The colonel looked over his shoulder and then fanned a handgun toward Loftus. Bullets flew and Loftus slid across the catwalk. He scrambled back to his feet, sprinted, and finally overtook the larger man. Mundy's loud breathing mixed with the static field. Loftus dove and then wrapped his arms around the colonel's ankles. Mundy flipped over onto the catwalk and his glasses spun around on the white surface. I'm innocent! Loftus shoved the rifle barrel into Mundy's fat cheek, denting the skin. Please don't shoot me, Tom! You! You! Loftus dropped his rifle, lifting Mundy up by his robe, and slammed his fist into the larger man's jaw. Mundy's brown eyes rolled as he collapsed. Abject fear soon filled his eyes. 
In the catwalk, he panted like a puppy dog. I was just following orders. I was. I was. You, pompous. Loftus picked him up again. Self-serving glutton. What the hell are you people trying to do up here? I can explain everything. It's not as bad as you think. Not as bad as you think. No, not at all. His whimpering annoyed Loftus. Please don't kill me, Tom. Once you know the truth, don't kill you. Right. Should I consider what just happened to Vernon Crawford? Garvey did it. How about Mike Brand? Garvey again! Joey Atkins, O'Brien, all the people involved with power generation, Harmon. The only reason I'm not going to kill you is because I want this place shut down and I want the Grady kid from Appleton safely delivered to me in 15 minutes. He's right up there. He's right up there with DeLuca. DeLuca? You don't miss a trick, do you? No one else is injured. Not the least. Not the least. And you will release them all and, and anyone else you might have up there. Those you haven't killed. It can be done. It can be done, Tom. He picked up his glasses and focused on Loftus. You look good, Tom. Shut up, Harmon. He said, tightening his fists again. Mundy quickly stepped back. The kid, the kid, I'll get the kid, I'll get him, I'll shut everything down. All down, all down. You're damn right you will. I'm going upstairs first. Mundy moved back, but Loftus grabbed his shoulders. One more thing. Oh yes, Tom, sure, sure. I was set up at Long Beach, wasn't I? Not by me, not by me. You got Allsworthy out of there on the ferry to Catalina, didn't you? Mundy seemed astonished by his words. I don't know what you're talking about, Tom. It's a very complicated story. Very, very, very. I got plenty of time, Harmon, and so do you. Now get that fat ass of yours in gear or I'll fill it full of buckshot. Mundy glanced at his backside. I'm a victim of circumstance. Loftus pushed the rifle against his buttocks as he marched him back. His helmet communicator sounded. Isaac Watkins was again trying to get through. Isaac, can you read me? The damn fields down here are messing everything up. You'll have to wait till you reach operations. The turbo fields wreck everything. Wreck everything. Who set me up, Harmon? The President. King? Loftus shoved the rifle into Mundy's face. He spoke to the rattled Mundy through crunched teeth. You were there. You were involved, or you never would have gotten your position. Never. I tell you, it's more complicated. You have no idea. No idea. Loftus's eyes opened wide, and the blood rushed to his face. Yes, you're right. We did. We did. Stop agreeing with me. Troops stood between the elevators and the flashing blue turbo fields. And that little sideshow for DeLuca with the simulation. You can't fool people on a large-scale basis from the central feeds. Tom, nobody will question it. But it's not real. Mundy slowly turned. It's as real as anything else on those feeds. Everything is consolidated now. Program news is in the hands of the very few. What difference does it make? Just like what you people have done with the atmospheric electricity. What difference does it make? People are dead, but you people know best, right? Exactly! You're dumber than I thought. Now move it. We're going upstairs. You men, I want the colonel here under constant guard. Well, that's a little much, isn't it, Tom? Asked Mundy. Is it? Harmon, I'd be in my right shooting you right now, and I damn well would enjoy it. He faced the others. I want another eight men securing the operations tower. The rest of you were going upstairs to the staging area. 
Mundy, now under the sights of twelve rifles, looked at Loftus. Tom, I'd advise you to get out of here while you still can. Don't threaten me with your bullshit, Harmon. We're the ones in control now, remember? There's great power here. More power than you can even imagine. Other things that you just won't believe. I still don't believe it myself. Mundy stood in the open doors. We need teams down here later to investigate these turbo fields. Tapping the Earth's magnetic fields is both remarkable and a clever feat. I don't see how you did it. I tell you, Tom, you're in great danger. You need to tell Isaac to leave here now. You're all dead men if you stay here. Loftus said nothing. He scowled at Mundy as he stepped inside and closed the doors. They sped up through the shaft. You know, Harmon, I never realized how big a bluffer you were until now. Allsworthy. He's alive. Loftus raised his left brow as the elevator continued upward. The rising orange mushroom cloud over Los Angeles Harbor again became clear in his thoughts. He was not sure if Mundy was telling the truth. No one could have survived the yacht explosion. Yet Loftus had a painful grinding in the pit of his stomach that Mundy might for once be telling the truth. When they stopped and the doors opened, he walked from the elevator and picked out eight additional men, but he refused to acknowledge what Mundy had just said. Parsons, bring Colonel Mundy to General Watkins in the staging area. Yes, sir. The doors slid and were about to close, but Mundy stepped by Parsons and wedged his large body between the closing doors. Allsworthy has great power. I don't know exactly what that power consists of, but he has access to great power. Evil power, Tom. Save your soliloquies, Harmon. Things are going on up here at Bathurst that won't be believed. They won't be. Get him upstairs and then send a team to release John Grady and DeLuca unharmed. The Colonel will give you the location, won't you, Colonel? Tom, I don't even know the full extent of what's happening up here. Allsworthy has more information. Get him the hell out of here. Mundy yelped as the doors closed and Loftus jogged with his men back to the tower's spiral stairway. Oh, come on, Tom, Tom! They emerged in the elaborate control room with window spans overlooking the cave and densely packed plastic portal consoles and bright screens. We haven't heard from the general, Captain. Loftus walked deliberately to the consoles and pushed the red portal button. Portal, try General Watkins again. Isaac, Isaac, this is Loftus. This is Sergeant Winter. I have the general here, Captain. Loftus tried to decipher the complex array of bright lights and panels. They would need teams of scientists, maybe some of the original Bathurst team, to disarm this place. Tom, this is Isaac. Isaac, Monday is being escorted up by Parsons and armed guards. They should be up there any second. Excellent. Good work. What about Zack? He's back in the plane, Tom. They're working on him. I don't have answers right now. Loftus nodded and pressed his lips. DeLuca and John Grady. Monday knows exactly where they are. Excellent. Excellent. I'm leaving people down here in operations. Is the complex clear it? Well, we can't find Garvey. Isaac, Monday said something about Nathan being here and alive. And other things going on up here. Well, that's ludicrous. He's trying to rattle you. We all know Walsworthy died in the explosion at Long Beach. We'd better follow up, and we'd better make sure they haven't implemented any of their sub-atmospheric plans. We'll sweep the area and start interrogations, beginning with your favorite colonel. Good. Give me half an hour. I want to look over this operations place down here. You've got that half hour, and then you can go back to retirement. 
going back to Appleton, and I'm not leaving this time. Let me know if there's any change with Zack. Will do. Black is out. Duplicating reality? Yikes. At the Virginia safe house, DeLuca is not calling back, which worries Loftus. Loftus, Zack, and Kath are whisked away by soldiers. Fortunately, their friendly soldiers determined to stop Mundy's new technology, and Loftus's dreams of another planet continue. The destination for these soldiers is Bathurst Island in northern Canada, and waiting them are Mundy, the Freeman Mobile, and Bathurst soldiers. If that's not enough, wait until episode 6, then it will all make sense. I'm Robert P. Fitton, up to Bathurst we go. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.